Romanian pastor by the name of Laszlo Tokas had what was almost certainly the worst year of his life. Uh, under the totalitarian regime of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, he faced a court order for his eviction. Uh, he saw four armed men with knives break into his home. His pregnant wife fell ill. His power was cut off. His food rations were denied. Then a number of the members of his congregation were arrested and beaten. And one of the members of his congregation was found murdered in the woods outside of his village. And he had to preach the Christmas sermon. What do you say? What do you offer to people after a year like that? He read through the accounts in Matthew and Luke and finally decided to preach on what will be today's passage. Uh, what's come to be known as Herod's Mas Massacre of the Innocents. It is the least read and the least cherished of all of the Christmas accounts, but it's there. Uh, I've never seen a Christmas card with the scene depicted on it, although there are paintings of uh, this passage that, uh, uh, that, are, that are there to be used. And yet it was a passage that brought incredible encouragement and hope to that Romanian pastor and his little uh, village uh, church community. And it's my hope that this same passage will give hope to all of us. Uh, hope in particular if this has been a hard year. Uh, if this year you enter Christmas knowing pain or loss or disappointment. I want to encourage you to turn with me. It's, it's not an easy passage. It's not, a, uh, it's not a simple passage. And so if you have it open in front of you, it'll help a lot. Uh, it is uh, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 13 down to 23. Uh, in the Pew Bible, in the rack in front of you, it's on page 758. And if you'd follow along as I read, uh, I'll read from chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, was, uh, his father Herod he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Now, sometimes as I sit down to try to understand a passage, it's difficult to try and figure out what is being emphasized. With this particular passage, however, it was very easy. Because here you've got an angel warning Joseph in a dream three times about three places. And then Matthew supplies three quotes from the Old Testament to explain the meaning and significance of what he's saying. So there are three sections, and I have, not surprisingly, three points. But there is one message through all of it. And the message is that Jesus enters into our painful circumstances to carry out his good plan. Let me show you how this gets worked out in in this first section. Because Matthew will show that Jesus' life begins in flight, but promises deliverance. Before Jesus was even a toddler and knew how to walk, he had become a refugee. And although he began his life in in this... uh, uh, circumstance of, of having to, to flee, having to uh, uproot. In doing so, God began the rescue of the world. So Jesus' life begins in flight, but promises deliverance. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the prequel to this, the backstory. Uh, I didn't dare preach this on as our main Christmas service, um, fearing a revolt from all of you, but we're we're gonna we're gonna look at this next time this time, and then we'll look at the magi uh, who uh, sought uh, and brought gifts to Jesus uh, next time that we we gather. But if you look in verse thirteen, it opens in crisis. Uh, an angel warns Joseph to escape to Jesus, and it's important that an angel is appearing to Joseph in these, and and that we know that because if we didn't know that, we might be tempted to think, oh. Joseph has just run away to to Egypt because he was scared, because he was cowardly, because he was compromising in some way. But at at each step, it becomes clear an angel is directing his steps, and this is all unfolding according to the plan of God. The question is, what kind of plan is this that God has? An evil king is on the throne, and he's intent on destroying Jesus. Jesus. Joseph and Mary's lives have been uprooted and they seem unstable and, un- and out of control. What's God doing? What, why would God allow this? And then as if hearing our questions, Matthew answers, I believe, that question. What, why would God allow this? And he answers it in verse 15 with these words. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You might hear that and think, well, what kind of answer is that? If you you look in the Old Testament, it's a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. But it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus. Often in Scripture, what happens is the author will look back to what has happened in the past, what God has done in history, and we'll see that as a pattern or a paradigm for what God is doing in the present or in the future. And that's exactly what's happening here. Matthew looks at these circumstances of, of uh, first, 
Jesus having to flee to Egypt and then to return from there and says, this is what God has done in the past and he's doing it now in our present. By pointing to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, what Matthew is saying is, remember the other time when we feared for our lives. Remember the other time when there was that evil ruler who was killing our babies and threatening to wipe out the people of God. Remember that other time when, at at that time when it was happening in Egypt with, with the babies, remember that God saved a deliverer. That time his name was Moses. But remember also that as he did that, that that deliverer that God raised up at that time came to deliver the nation, came to lead them in a new exodus, lead them into the promised land. And Matthew points back to that situation, sees the similarities and the parallels with what he sees happening in his own day, and he says, God's doing that again. God is bringing out a new exodus. He is delivering his people again. We can see that in the circumstances that are unfolding in the life of Jesus Christ. He's bringing a new deliverance, a new rescue, a new exodus for the people of God. But he's doing it in an even greater way. That's encouraging to us. It should be encouraging to us because, frankly, Often our lives don't make a lot of sense. Often we, f- we find difficulty recon- reconciling the difficulty and the pain of our circumstances with a good and loving God who is ordering the events of our lives. And, and what, what Christmas does is to force us to recognize that even when it feels like Herod is on the throne and we're on the run, that God is carrying out his good plan. It's a reminder that Jesus enters our painful circumstances to carry out his good plans. But there's more. So let's look at the next section. Here, Jesus' life begins amidst brutal murder, but promises comfort. Like the baby Moses who was saved as so many Hebrew babies were being killed, Jesus was delivered. Uh, He got the warning, was able to escape to Egypt. And yet, uh, many baby boys in Bethlehem were killed. Uh, Estimates were based on the size of the town in the first century and and the the number of, uh, of, of boys that would have probably existed at the time at that age. Probably about 20 to 25 children were killed unthinkable tragedy. But Jesus' life, although beginning amidst murder here, promises comfort. And even in this tragedy, there is a promise of comfort. It's hard for us to, to, uh, hard for us to understand, and it's hard for me to explain, how, how evil a world that Jesus was actually born into. There were many layers of corruption in uh, the Roman Empire, but in this particular part of the, part of the Roman Empire, uh, a, a, a dictator by the name of Herod ruled over uh, this, this part of the world. Herod may not have been a great man under any circumstances, but early in his reign, there was a, an assassination plot to bring him down. 
he got wind of that plot, rounded up the 10 people who had conspired to, uh, to kill him. He not only had those 10 people executed, he had each of their families executed. And so you, you get a sense even early on there in his reign, just how brutal a dictator he was. But it created, uh, that, that incident cr- seemed to create an, a sense of unusual paranoia in his life. So, for instance, at one point, he married a Hasmonean princess in order to kind of consolidate his, par- his power among the Hasmoneans. And yet, when this uh, wife uh, that he had taken, is, uh, uh, the w- woman who had become his wife, when he began to suspect that she might actually uh, lead to uh, support opposition against him, she, uh, he had her executed. Then he had her mother executed. Then he had the two sons that he had by her also executed. So when we come to this passage and we see that Herod has killed these some 20, 25 uh, baby boys in Bethlehem, fearing them as potential rivals to his throne, unfortunately, this is par for the course for this man. People suffered terribly under his rule. There was incredible hardship and pain. The parents who lost these children felt unimaginable grief. And you need to see that to understand what is actually being communicated here because very likely these people weren't really looking for a baby savior. Probably what they wanted was Herod to be destroyed. They wanted a new king. They wanted him out of the picture. They wanted their babies back. They wanted relief from the oppression that they felt. Now, while they might have just wanted to get rid of King Herod, that's not what God did, at least initially. Problem is, sin runs deeper than that. And and often we don't see the full dimension of sin. We look for band-aids to our circumstances. And and by band-aids, I'm not being flippant, suggesting that they are are light things. Often they are deep, painful things. But the problem of replacing Herod is that he will be replaced likely by someone at least as bad and perhaps worse. And so God invests himself in deeper solutions, eternal solutions, and he holds out to us eternal hope. Matthew Matthew sees his tragedy as a fulfillment of scripture. He quotes from Jeremiah 31.15, and it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It it pictures Jacob's wife, Rachel, uh, metaphorically, as a picture, weeping over her children, weeping over the, uh, the, the children of Israel. It, it, it was given at a time when the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem, and there was much loss. There were many deaths. There was a lot of pain and, yes, unconsolable grief. The interesting thing about Jeremiah 31.15 is that it is the only note of of despair in an entire chapter 
that is filled with reassurances of God's hope and God's promise. The, the Jewish readers who were reading Matthew's gospel here would immediately clue in as soon as he quoted from the prophet Jeremiah at this point, they would recognize, yes, that's the point in the scriptures where they were weeping, they were feeling this uncontrollable grief, but that's when God promised them hope. That's when God offered comfort. That's when God offered a new day and, in fact, a new covenant. And that, that really is the heart of Jeremiah 31. It's this promise of what God was going to do. And so by pointing to this tragic invasion of Israel by Babylon, what Matthew is saying is, remember that other time when it felt like we were beyond comfort? Remember that time when the, the, we felt loss and we felt hopelessness? Remember that it was at that very point where God promised us hope for the p- future. That was a time when God promised us as a new covenant and a new day. It was a time when God dried our tears and helped us to see that relief was coming. And Jesus is doing that again. That Matthew could see in the unfolding of these events that while Herod was still on the throne, that a new king had been born and there was a new day coming and God was bringing to fulfillment all of those promises. Again, Christmas reminds us that Jesus enters into our painful circumstances to carry out his good plans. Finally, let's look at the third section, though, and the third prophecy. And see how Jesus' life begins amidst great prejudice, but promises peace with God. It's important for us to recognize, and Matthew's emphasizing for us in this passage, that Jesus' life didn't just begin as a refugee. It wasn't just that he was uprooted from his homeland and, and escaped to Egypt, but even after that, as he returned, he would be forced to settle in a town that would forever label him with misunderstanding, confusion, and prejudice. So his life begins with that prejudice, but promises peace with God. Now you would think, or I would think, that once Herod, Herod is dead, Jesus is in the clear. doesn't have anything to worry about anymore. But what actually happened was when Herod died, his kingdom was divided between his three sons. The worst of those sons, the most evil and notorious of those three sons, a man by the name of Archelaus, he had control over the region of Judea where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were. And so it wouldn't be safe. Je- Jesus, Joseph felt and the angel warned that uh, it wouldn't be safe for him to be there. And so he was warned in a dream again to, to withdraw, to retreat to a countryside uh, village in Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth would be definitely more safe. It would be uh, under the rule of, a, of another one of Herod's sons named Antipas, who was not quite as evil, not quite as notorious, but it would also have the consequence of labeling Jesus uh, with prejudice and discrimination throughout his life. When Nathanael in John chapter uh, 1 verse 46 hears that Jesus might be the promised Messiah, first thing that came out of his mouth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
If you were there, you would have said the, th the same thing. You would have reacted with the same kind of prejudice and bias. Because for someone to claim to be something when they were coming from nowhere just was laughable to the average person. And in the first century, if you had a common name like Jesus, when somebody introduced you, when somebody referred to you, they would always refer to you by their, your name and where you came from. And so it would be very common for, Jesus, for people to refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. He might be introduced as, oh, there's Jesus of Nazareth. And every time people referred to him in that way, it would bring a little bit of a smile to, your, to, your, to, to you because anyone declaring themselves to be someone but coming from a town like that, it just couldn't be taken very seriously. And so he would face that discrimination throughout his life. Matthew recognizes, though, this isn't a coincidence. In fact, this is an important and significant part of God's plan. In verse 23, he says that this was so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene just means someone who comes from Nazareth. It just seems like a regular prophecy from the Old Testament, something that he's quoting, except after 2,000 years and lots of scholars scouring the Old Testament to figure out where this came from, guess what? There isn't a phrase or a verse that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. What it does instead is say again and again and again that the Messiah would be disrespected, looked down upon and despised. And that seems strange because you would think if, if the Son of God came, if the Savior came, if the Messiah came to rescue his people, surely he would be held in honor. Surely he'd be lifted up and, and, and treated with great respect. How could that be? And so it was something of a mystery in the Old Testament. How could this Savior come and bring, to, to bring rescue and still be treated with disrespect? How could he be despised? And probably the most famous place where this is spoken of is in Isaiah 53.3. There it says, referring to the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What Matthew does is to, to look at this verse and others like it throughout the Old Testament and says that the angel leading Joseph and Mary to a dead-end village like Nazareth was exactly according to the plan of God, sending him to a place that was despised in order that he might become the despised one. Again, all according to plan. And he, he faced this discrimination. He faced this bias. He faced the disrespect of people out of love for you and I. Now, even as Matthew identified Jesus as a despised one of Isaiah 53, all of Matthew's readers would immediately know what happens to two verses after this verse of the Messiah being despised in Isaiah 53.3. In Isaiah 53.5, that's where you see the word, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's that great promise that the coming Messiah would bring relief to his people by bearing their sins, taking upon himself the consequences of, uh, of the nation's sins, of the people's transgressions. And that through his death on their behalf, that people would find peace with God. People would be healed of the sickness of sin. Once again, Jesus enters our painful circumstances to carry out his good plan. Now, we've walked through this passage fairly quickly, but I want to just slow down now and unpack what I think are some profound implications. The first is that God is more committed to eternal solutions than quick fixes for our problems. That's what makes this passage, frankly, so hard to accept. It it makes it hard to accept because I don't want to accept that God allows dictators, evil dictators, to make refugees out of good people. I don't want to accept that. I don't want to accept that God allows selfish people to kill babies. And yet that's exactly what I see happening in this passage. I don't want to accept that God sometimes leads leads his people to places where they will experience discrimination, bias, disrespect. I don't want to accept that. And yet I see it in the passage. I don't want to accept, frankly, that God's plan for my life could be this hard. And yet I see it there in the passage. I don't want to accept any of these things, but if I'm going to trust God as he is rather than God as I'd like him to be, I think I need to accept those things. I I think I need to recognize that God's plan can sometimes be far more difficult than I would have liked. And to recognize that he's more committed to eternal solutions and eternal eternal plan, uh, eternal promise than he is to fixing some of the things that I just see staring me in my face. The second lesson for me is that when the storm hits, faith means finding comfort in those eternal promises, not in my quick fixes. I don't know if you really heard the message of verse 18, but I'm going to read it for you again. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You know why she's weeping, right? We understand why she can't be comforted anymore, why she feels inconsolable, beyond comfort. She's lost her children. She feels the pain of that loss. But the message of this passage is that God comes to those who seem like they are beyond comfort. He comes to people who seem like they are inconsolable. And he doesn't offer immediately to take it all away, although that's what we would want God to do. Instead, he invites them to find comfort by faith in his internal plan. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we need to be honest enough to say, that's hard to do. If you're entering the holidays facing loss and disappointment this year, 
let's be honest. We don't really want to find comfort in God's eternal plan. We don't want to have to find comfort in, in, in that. We want to find comfort in having that loss removed. We want to find comfort in having our circumstances fixed now. We want, to, we want solutions that don't require faith. And, and none of those things are, are wrong or unnatural. Of course they are. But God invites us to find our hope and our comfort in a different place. We want the loss and the disappointment to just go away. But if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize it's not just going to go away. And so we either find ourselves locked into a seeking after something that won't be, uh, some situation that we can't reverse, or we respond to what God is offering us, to find our hope and our comfort in a different place, in his eternal plan. The final lesson I take from this passage is that out of love for us, Jesus willingly faced every trial that we ever want to avoid. Think of the trial, whatever it might be. Discrimination, disrespect, discomfort, death. Think of the trial that you want to avoid. And you will see in that trial a trial that Jesus willingly walked into out of love for you and I. In Jesus' case, in, in our case, we are often broadsided by these painful circumstances that we can't avoid. And if we saw them coming, we would run the other way as quickly as we could. Jesus sees the painful circumstances and knowing that it is only in going through those that he could secure our salvation, that he could identify with our pain, and he willingly chooses to go to places that we would never choose for ourselves. He willingly chooses to walk through trials that if we had the choice, we would run from before they came anywhere near us. Think of something in your life right now that feels unfair. Whatever you can say of that trial, you have to also say, Jesus has been there and he gets it. Jesus understands. And he took that upon himself out of love for us. If that message can bring hope to a Romanian pastor who had lived through the worst year of his life, then I think it can bring hope to each of us. It's offered to us in hope in the pages of Scripture, and God meets us here where we are today to offer that hope to us. But responding to that hope comes with the work of faith, trusting that God is the one who can bring these things to pass, trusting that we can find a comfort in God, a strength in him, an assurance and a comfort in his presence that is enough to help us to walk through what would otherwise be unimaginable tragedies situations where we would say, I'm beyond comforting. I'm inconsolable. 
That is the hope that is offered to us at Christmas. That's the hope that's offered to us in our Savior. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that Christmas is in all stars and angels. Thank you that you deal with the harsh reality of life in this world. Father, when we're faced with that harsh reality, trusting you can be hard work. So give us the strength to do that hard work. The work of believing you. The work of finding hope in your promises. And the work of finding comfort in your presence. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.